German winemakers in the American Midwest, honey and brie ice cream, and urban beekeeping. This week, it's Cat Neville from TV's Tastemakers. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the show where we explore the food of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're talking with Emmy-winning TV host Kat Neville about the new season of her show, Tastemakers. But first, if you like the show, if you like food and travel, please rate and review the podcast. Taking just a couple seconds to do this helps more people learn about Destination Eat Drink, and it helps me to do more and better shows. Thank you so very, very much. Kat Neville is an Emmy Award-winning TV host and producer. She created the documentary Winemaking in Missouri, A Well-Cultivated History, back in 2022. And now, the third season of her series, Tastemakers, is out on PBS. Check your local listings to see when Tastemakers airs in your area, or go to watchtastemakers.com. Kat tells me about urban beekeeping and a pediatrician at the forefront of this movement in Kansas City. Then we talk about the rich history of winemaking in Missouri, a tradition that continues to today, and how Missouri played an important role in today's European winemaking. Then we talk ice cream, one of my favorite topics. We talk about ice cream made with real mint and lots of other fun ice cream flavors. Okay, I'm starving, so... Let's eat. Destination. Eat, drink. Kat Neville from Tastemakers. Welcome back to Destination Eat, Drink. I was I was looking over my notes. I was like, Kat's been on the show before, but it seems like it's been a while. I looked, and it's been actually over four years. You were one of the first guests on my show. I've been doing this for almost five years now. You were one of the very first guests on my show. So uh, welcome back. I'm so happy that you've got new uh, tastemakers out there. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back with you. And it really, it feels, it feels really good to be back out there and uh, telling more stories about these great makers. I love the premise of your show because, you know, it is so hyper locally um, focused, you talking to these people who are actually making a difference on the ground. And of course it's food centric. So <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> this is my wheelhouse, man. Um, and I want to talk about a few of the episodes that you made for this brand new season, season three of Tastemakers, which is, which is out now. People should check their local listings on PBS to see when it airs. Um, you did an episode on urban beekeeping and I think most people maybe are not familiar with what urban beekeeping actually is. Could you explain what urban beekeeping is? Absolutely. And this is a multi-layered story. It's not just about beekeeping. So Dr. Marion Pearson, um, she is a practicing pediatrician. She's a mom. She has invented various medical devices um, her kids are essentially, you know, like leaving the nest. And number one, she's afraid of bugs, which hmm. kind of seems like it would preclude you from becoming a beekeeper. And yet, 
Um, she really loves honey and she was kind of looking for something else to do. And she was really inspired by the work done by Detroit Hives, which is an initiative in Detroit where they take um, like abandoned urban lots and they install apiaries. Uh, and so she, she was inspired by that. She's based in Kansas city. And what she did was she started, um, this urban beekeeping initiative, but it's much more than that because she is taking these abandoned and disused lots, cleaning, cleaning them up, installing these beehives as well as native plants. But then she is enlisting the help of kids high school kids in in like managing the apiaries caring for the bees and so it's a it's a really brilliant way for her to help revitalize these neighborhoods but also engage these young people in green stem um so they're learning about the environment they're learning about the science of beekeeping they're learning about um like what pollinators do um so it's a, it's a there's so much more than just creating awesome honey, but she does that too. She actually um, segments her um, her honey collection by zip code and she creates these zip code specific honeys. It's really, really fun. It's so cool. And I'm watching this episode and I'm thinking, Dr. Pearson, she's just a force of nature. I mean, she's got, yeah. she's got hives on the roofs of abandoned buildings. She even has hives on the property of the governor's mansion. It's it's really yes. quite impressive. Yeah, she is. She's brilliant. And she I mean, just think about it. She has built this just within a couple of years. She's built this wide ranging um, nonprofit while she's also running her own private medical practice. She's an amazing human. And, and again, it's like the honey is really just the vehicle to tell the story of, of her and the work that she's doing and why it's important. And my, my hope is that in the same way that she was inspired by the team at Detroit Hives and what they were doing for their city, there are other people who can say, oh, look at what Dr. Pearson's doing in Kansas City. You know, I can do that in my city and, and kind of like take, take this, this idea of someone who is creative and dedicated and um, and making a difference and, and, you know, just kind of let that grow. That's really what I'm kind of hoping with this particular story. You did a honey tasting with Dr. Pearson. You talk about the, <laughs> the zip code specific honeys and you could, mm -hmm. you could see them on the table. You could see the different colors of honey from the different hives and the different locations. But what, what about the taste? Could you taste a difference oh. between the different honeys? Yes. So different. I mean, so not only, so what the bees are eating or what they're with the, the nectar that they're gathering. I mean, think about it. It's, it, it's all like each, all the, all the, all the um, different flowers smell different. They, they taste different. And, you know, so, so of course the honey that they're producing will, will taste different depending on what the bees are, are sourcing. And, you know, so you might have a quote wildflower honey unquote, which is pretty generic and it tastes like, you know, your, 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 your platonic idea of of honey but then if you do uh, have a way of segmenting bees and having them only do orange blossom or only go to certain types of flowers then you really can tell the difference but what's really fascinating 
is um, not only are honeys different depending on where they're produced, it's also different season by season because the blossoms that honeys are, or the bees are able to access obviously change throughout the season. So even with a zip code specific honey, it's going to taste different if the honey is collected in summer versus fall. It's just fascinating. You put on the uh, beekeeper suit and yes. <laughs> all I, it's, it's really cool looking, but all I could think of as I'm watching this is uh, Kat's going to be in the reboot of the uh, Breaking Bad series because it's like <laughs> you, you got that suit on and it looks like uh, Walter White, you know, getting ready to go <laughs> and, and do the thing. <laughs> Oh, and I got to tell you, it was hot. I mean, that was a summer day in Missouri. It was hot. It was humid. But you really need to use that protective layer. Um, Typically, the bees really are not aggressive, especially if you're using smoke to kind of calm them down. They have no interest in stinging you because honeybees, unlike wasps, for example, honeybees, when they sting you, they die. So they're they're not, you know, raring to go. Um, but obviously they will protect their hive, they will protect their queen. Um, so you do want to you want to protect yourself in that situation. But it's it's such an amazing thing to be close to a hive. And and I hope that the episode relayed that because the the buzzing, the energy of thousands and thousands of bees inside of of that that hive and that honeycomb, it's electric. Like it really um it's it's just a fascinating thing and and I would encourage anyone listening, you know, if you're even remotely interested in learning about bees, I'm sure that there are local um, beekeepers who would love to, you know, let you put on a bee suit and like help with a honey harvest or or come and learn and volunteer. It's just it's a fascinating thing. And people, um, you know, one of the things that I really took away also from talking to Dr. Pearson is, you know, these kids who she has engaged in this idea and Cameron, who's only 14, um, is, is one of the young, is the young person who I was able to interview for the, for the episode, you know, he wants to go into animal science. He's, he may or may not be a beekeeper. It's not really about becoming a lifelong beekeeper. It really is about, um, expanding your mind and learning that the world is bigger than, you know, just your neighborhood. And there are so many opportunities and things to explore. And, and so I think that she is going to have a lasting impact on the lives of many, many young people in the Kansas City area and beyond. Dr. Pearson used this term, and, and you said it earlier, green STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, so I, I guess what you're saying is it's it's not necessarily about beekeeping, but it does fall under this category of green STEM. Is is that kind of the idea here? Yeah, absolutely. And the green is because she really is teaching them about the environment and environmentalism and the impact of um, of our impact on the environment and how important bees are to our food systems. Um, yeah, I mean, it really, it engages not just young people, but anyone who gets involved in beekeeping. You learn about the science, um, the ecology, you learn about, you know, you learn about so many different aspects of of our of our planet, the way that everything is interconnected when you learn about bees and how to care for them and why they're important. Because it's all a closed system. And as I was watching this, I was thinking, you know, I wasn't aware of this idea of urban beekeeping before I watched your episode. But 
I am familiar with this idea of urban green space and a lot of people taking abandoned lots and creating things like community gardens and and things like that. And it only makes sense that if you have a garden that you need to have pollinators nearby, which is what makes this whole uh, project so genius, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it's not just gardens. Um, I mean, if you're growing vegetables, like if you're growing squash or, or something like that, you have to have pollinators and, um, you know, uh, fruit trees that you have to have pollinators. It is a necessary part of the reproductive cycle for these plants. And so, I mean, that's why people have these mobile, you know, pollinator services where they'll take um, beehives from, you know, farmer's field to farmer's field, especially like in places like California, where the, you have these massive, uh, you know, areas of, of cultivation that a lot of folks, there aren't bees nearby. And so beekeepers will, that's a, it's a big business where they will take, um, beehives from place to place. So if you're able to, to cultivate beehives, you know, in urban spaces, it really helps to keep those, um, you know, the the plants and the animals and, and everything that is connected in an urban landscape thriving. I mean, I live in the, in essentially directly downtown, uh, south of downtown St. Louis, Missouri. And, you know, it, there are plants and animals that, that are living here and they, they benefit from having pollinators nearby. Dr. Pearson said something in, in the episode that I thought was, um, was interesting and poignant of how uh, one in three bites of food that we take require a pollinator. And um, that number wasn't surprising to me. It might be surprising to some people, but I, I see a lot of folks, especially, you know, maybe uh, eight, 10 years ago when colony collapse disorder first came into the public zeitgeist and people were talking about it and like, what's going to happen? And there was a lot of people saying things like, well, if there's no bees, there's no food, which I think turns a lot of people off because they're like, wait a minute, isn't that a little alarmist? But Dr. Pearson put it into perspective as to what it actually is, because bees aren't the only pollinators and all food does not require a pollinator, but it's a hugely important part of the food system that we've come to rely on. Yeah. And that's why telling these stories is so important. It really comes down to educating people by telling them a a story that they're drawn into, you know, I mean, it's really, you know, telling the story of Dr. Pearson, taking you to her hive, seeing her amazingly cute, um, you know, like little shed that she's built for, um, for Mo hives right there in, in a urban neighborhood in Kansas city. Um, you know, it's like you get drawn into her story, but then, you know, exactly what you're saying. I mean, you've learned so much about, what it means to to encourage urban beekeeping, the impact that it has, the importance of bees. Um, so that's really the my hope for the entire series is that when you learn about these people and you get drawn into their stories, you learn more about our food system and you learn about um, you know how you can maybe even get involved. Let's jump to wine, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> you, <laughs> You did an episode that uh, focused on uh, wines in Missouri, uh, specifically went to uh, Dale Hollow Winery. And of course, when I flipped the episode on, my first reaction was Missouri wines. I had no idea. (laughs) 
is, is this a typical reaction that you get from outsiders who are ignorant about this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, even people who live in Missouri aren't aren't that aware of Missouri wine. But we have been making wine in Missouri um, since the early 1800s. Missouri uh, is a is a really fascinating crossroads state, right in the middle of the United States. And um, <clears throat> St. Louis, for example, is at the confluence of of the two major rivers um, on this continent, the Mississippi and the Missouri, and so people came in, um, they came to St. Louis as kind of a jumping off point to other points west. And a lot of the Germans who came in, they uh, went down the Missouri River and in the beautiful rolling topography along the Missouri River reminded them greatly of, <laughs> of the Rhine Valley. And so a lot of them chose to settle. And so that we've been, we Missouri has a has had a commercial winemaking industry since the early 1830s, and that it's a long story um, that involves international intrigue with the phylloxera bug and all of this kind of stuff. But um, today we have about 130 wineries um, that are operating in the state of Missouri and more vineyards besides. But Dale Hollow is such an interesting story. Because it is a young family um, in a in a in a town called Stover, Missouri. It's not part of uh, any of our like traditional winemaking regions, and um, they just on a whim decided in our in their grandfather's land where their grandfather used to grow corn and all that kind of stuff. You know, normal farming stuff. Um, they decided on a whim to plant like a thousand vines. And that was ten years ago. And and in the in in kind of the the annual cultivation of the grapes and each year trying to make wines and kind of learning step by step, because really winemakers only have one chance every year to make wine. You know, they have they have created this wonderful community gathering place where the wine is delicious, um, but it's more than that. It really has become a spot for the community to be proud of and to come together and to and to to know each other and and what Katie Dale is really inspiring to me because she traveled to Europe and she was learning about wine specifically in Italy and it clicked for her that in Europe where they've been making wine for thousands of years wine is regional and it's local and it's not you know something where you know I think I can't remember exactly what the um, what the example was, but she was like, you know, when you're in XYZ region, you don't drink Chianti, you, you know, you drink Valpolcella. And, and so she was like, and, and so it made sense to me that, you know, in my small winery in Missouri, in the Ozarks, I need to be making regional Ozark wines and teaching people about what that means. And to me, again, kind of in the way that the story of Dr. Pearson is, a, you know, it's one story in one place, but it's larger. I mean, there are amazing wines that are made in New York and Virginia, Colorado, New Mexico. There are, there are beautiful wine regions across the United States. And there is um, a really gathering interest in regional American wines. And I mean, obviously wines from Napa and Sonoma and Walla Walla Wash, like all these like beautiful wine regions are amazing, but there's so much more to explore in American wine. And so again, it's like, that's what I think is so fascinating about this story 
Yes, Katie and Jesse Dale are a, an extremely cute, you know, um, I hate to, that sounds, that doesn't sound like the right word, but they like Jesse, when he's, when he's being interviewed, he just keeps giggling because yeah. he's kind of like, I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah, like, yeah. It worked. We have this winery <laughs> and, and it's just wonderful to just see the joy that they have in creating this place together and with their family. Um, but again, it's a larger story because American wine a lot of winemakers are choosing to play around with grapes that you're just not familiar with, not the Cabernets and, you know, Chardonnays of the world, but they're playing with these hybrids that um, do well in not Mediterranean style, dry climates like you find in California, et cetera. You know, they're they're growing things like Chamberson and Norton and Vignol and uh and Saval Blanc and and these are, are grapes that most people have never heard of, but they make really delicious wines. And um, so I love wine, you love wine, and to me it's exciting to be able to explore wines that um are unusual and very regional. So that's what I'm hoping people take away from this particular episode. That episode resonated with me because you talk about the Germans who came to Missouri. Um, my great-grandfather uh, was one of those German immigrants. Uh, he didn't land in Missouri. He kept going. He landed in Nebraska, where there's a big German population. But my father used to remember going to his grandfather's house, my great-grandfather, the German immigrant, who had some vines in the backyard and would make wine in the German style, and he would give the grandkids a little, you know, he, he described it as a thimbleful of wine when, <laughs> when, they had, when they had dinner. So this episode was, was really uh, very personal to me, too, for that reason. I mean, I've been in food media for over 20 years. I've been doing this for a long time. And there are always big stories, you know, like stories of big wineries or, you know, really like famous chefs and that kind of stuff. And that's great. You know, I, the story, those stories are out there and they're already being told. What I'm really drawn to are stories of exactly what you're talking about. You know, they, they make you remember about, you know, your grandfather used to give these little thimblefuls. I feel like those are the stories that very often get left on the table. And those are the stories that I think are the most interesting because they teach us about what's possible for ourselves. And they teach us about our history and our, our common culture. And I don't, I don't know, to me, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I really like to seek out and, and share with people um, because they're the stories that don't get told very much. I'm glad you're sharing them with me because these are my favorite stories too. These are the stories that I like to tell on the podcast that I like to tell when I do, uh, when I do my YouTube videos or on my website too. So, uh, thank you for that. You know, one thing that I really like about this season is that you do, um, at least the episodes that I saw, you do a little cooking segment on each episode and on the winery one, you made something that, uh, looked fantastic. You made po <laughs> poached pears <laughs> with, yes. you know, poached them in wine with adding some uh, port wine and adding a Stilton cream sauce. And it's like ports and blue cheese and pears. And oh my God. 
Yeah. So um, I mentioned I've been doing this for a while and I used to do when I was the publisher of a magazine called Feast Magazine, I used to do a show called Feast TV that aired regionally across the Midwest. And that always included, I did like eight seasons of it, and it always included a recipe that I would develop. And the first couple seasons of Tastemakers did not include that recipe. But I just feel like you can tell these stories, but then, you know, you're watching it at home or you're watching it on your phone or whatever. And, you know, it's like, okay, but how does it relate to me? And I think a lot of it is, well, get in your kitchen. You know, you can cook with honey, you can cook with wine and drink the wine, obviously. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, so again, it's like, it's another touch point. So for each episode, what I do is I go back to the kitchen and, and you're right. I made, um, poached pears with a Stilton cream and candied walnuts. And I paired it with, um, with a, a lovely tawny, a Ruby port, not a tawny port, a Ruby port. Um, and it was delicious. And for the, um, for the bee episode, for the honey episode, I made, uh, like fried chicken with a hot honey and peanuts and cilantro. And it's just fun. Um, I think that the recipes are, like I said, are just one other way for people to relate to the content and see how they can bring it, um, into their own lives. Like even if they aren't going to become an urban beekeeper, they can go to their local farmer's market or grocery store that carries local stuff and they can get some local honey and cook with it. We live in a region of Portugal where it's, it's actually, in my opinion, one of the great underrated winemaking regions in the world, definitely in Portugal, but in the world. And they make a varietal here of fortified wine that's similar to port. It's called Muscatel using the same process, but it, it tastes a little bit different. And I was watching this because we take our Muscatel, we'll, we'll drink it straight or we can make Muscatel cocktails, you know, Muscatel uh, tonics and things like this. But I was watching the episode and I was thinking poached pears with muscatel. I got an idea here <laughs> with a little Portuguese yeah. cheese. I think, uh, I think I'm going to adapt a Portuguese uh, version of this from, uh, from cat show. So uh, I love it. That's awesome. It's so I'll, easy. Too. I'll let you know what the it's results beautiful. are. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so, you know, we, we talked about winemaking in, in Missouri and you talked about some of the uh, history of it, but you made a full documentary and, I watched the documentary of winemaking in Missouri, and the history was fascinating, like you talked about. And we'll have a link to that in the uh, in the show notes. But folks can watch it on YouTube. It is um, it is fascinating. Anything else that you want to mention about uh, winemaking in Missouri? Well, I mean, it it really is a fascinating history, and again, it's kind of like this little known wine region that has had a global impact. I mean, back before prohibition, Missouri was one of the um, largest winemaking regions in the country, and it was exporting wine around the world, particularly out of Herman, Missouri, which is if you if your listeners are ever looking for like an idyll idyllic little wine country surprise um, in the middle of the United States, Herman, Missouri is charming, charming, charming. Um, but beyond that, what's really interesting. I won't get too far into it if your listeners want to learn more about it, but there's a bug called phylloxera. It is, uh, it is a louse, a plant louse 
Um, and I mentioned international intrigue earlier in our conversation. So this plant louse, essentially because uh, the steam engine was invented as um, as root cuttings were being you know shipped back and forth uh, across the seas, you know from you know America to uh, to European winemakers, like these French winemakers were were taking. Um, American vines and planting them to experiment with them and see what was going on. And they unwittingly introduced phylloxera to Europe. And um, it almost devastated the entire European winemaking industry in the middle of the 19th century. And it was the um, the state entomologist of Missouri, C.V. Riley, who after a decade of no one under no one understanding what was going on and a lot of fighting and and just really devastating um impacts on the industry um cb riley finally figured out that it was the phylloxera louse and so then what the solution was was to graft native american rootstock onto european vines and so you can just imagine the the labor that went into that. So that's part of the story um, that is told in this documentary, but it's just an absolutely fascinating part of, of our history that a lot of people just aren't even aware of. So it's fun to be able to tell those types of stories. It's a great story. And I'll give you a, a little bit of uh, Portuguese history, how that fits in with that, because like you said, 99% of the vines in Europe were destroyed and had to be regrafted with uh, North American rootstock. One of the areas, I think there's two regions in Europe um, that were not affected by phylloxera. One of them is right outside of Lisbon, a winemaking region. And the reason why the phylloxera did not kill off those vines is because the vines were grown literally in sand. It's it's right oh. next to it's right next to the ocean and there's beach sand and I've been there and you go and the vines are it looks like they're growing in the beach. You know, that's how sandy it is. Phylloxera cannot wow. survive in that environment. And this is a tiny, tiny winemaking region. In fact, in the last 50 years, it's um, decreased in uh, numbers by about 95, 99 percent um, to the point where there's only 50 acres under cultivation now. But um, these are original vines that uh, that were not uh, that were not devastated by phylloxera. So I've tasted this wine. It's, frankly, it's not my favorite uh, be- <laughs> because it <laughs> but gr- it's a good story. <laughs> it's a great story. It's fascinating, especially the white wine. It is so um, uh, minerally. I don't think that's a, that's a word, but, uh, no, it is. No. um, that it is in wine. Yeah. Wine has lots of words that aren't words. Yeah. It, that <laughs> it, it almost, it has a salinity. It almost tastes salty, which is not favorable on my palate. The red tends to have stronger tannins, so it can mask that, um, that salinity a little bit more. But anyway, um, that's a, that's an interesting side note to, uh, what you're talking about with the, uh, phylloxera and Missouri's, uh, history with that. So interesting yeah, little story. Um, let's talk about, uh, Bold Spoon Creamery. Folks who listen to this podcast know that I'm an ice cream nerd. I, I was a gelato maker <laughs> for several years when we lived in Austin, Texas. So um, 
I, I'm I'm also a, a gelato snob when it comes to ice cream. So um, <laughs> what can you tell me about these folks at Bold Spoon? So Rachel Burns, this is a classic uh, story of she had a corporate job. She, I think, you know, I think she was like working for, I think it was Wells Fargo, like she was in finance. She had an overabundance of mint in her yard mm. because as you know, when you plant mint, if you put it in the yard as opposed to in a pot, it will just take over. It's everywhere. I mean, do not plant mint in the ground. Um, she made that mistake. And so she had all of this mint and she didn't know what to do. And her husband was like, make some ice cream. And so she made ice cream and her friends kind of fell all over themselves for this ice cream. And that was the beginning of her deciding to quit her corporate job and make ice cream professionally, which you hear these stories and then you're like, does that really happen? Does someone leave the comfort of a corporate job with a salary and benefits and all these wonderful things that you can count on and decide to make ice cream? And she has done that. So she used to live in the city and not only did she quit her job, but she and her husband um, took the opportunity to buy like a 50 acre plot of land out in the country. And now she has her production facility on her farm. She's cultivating mint there. She's cultivating different kinds of fruit. And um, she has a, a the beginnings of, of an orchard. And so she has like an ice cream farm, essentially, where she allows folks to come out for like ice cream socials. And they sit on this lovely pond and eat ice cream. And she's not interested in um in having like scoop shops uh what she really wants to do is is build uh, a brand where she's able to sell in like grocery stores and we have a wonderful in St. Louis we have this wonderful um soccer team professional soccer team uh St. Louis City SC they they just won last night and what's fascinating and is part of the story um, one of our uh, uh, James Beard award-winning chefs, Gerard Kraft, has cult has curated an all-local culinary experience at the soccer stadium, which is very unusual. Um, and so Bold Spoon is one of the makers featured there. So, like, what's really interesting is that you can find her ice cream in all of these different spots, and it's delicious. She does everything from like um, like a goat cheese ice cream to a honey and brie ice cream. She does one that's coffee and, and like an, a Kahlua and coffee, essentially ice cream. So all of these different, really fun flavors, along with, of course, the mint that, uh, that kind of started it all. It's, it's a really fun story of, you know, you too can decide that you're going to drop everything and follow your passion and really make a go of it. Love it. When when we first started making gelato, we had this little hobby farm, and it took me a while to figure out how to make mint chocolate chip with real mint. Because when when you start making ice cream, what you learn is a lot of these flavors are not the real thing. And mint is one yes. of them where they use mint oil, mint flavor, and food coloring to mimic uh, mint, you know, it's like you, you'll see these these green colors, and it's like that's my mint chocolate chip. It it looked like vanilla because you don't get uh you know you don't get a green color. But it took me a while to figure out how to get that how to get that mint flavor. I tried lots of different things, and 
that makes me happy that she's doing that she's doing the real deal at uh, at Bold Spoon Creamery. Oh yeah, for sure. She's definitely doing the real deal. And like even her lemon, which is delicious. She makes a lemon curd with, you know, with fresh butter and fresh lemons and yeah, nothing fake. And, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like making a really good coffee ice cream. Essentially you do a, like a cold toddy, like a, an ice, like a coffee, like when you do a cold extract, um, with, with water, you can do the exact same thing with cream and then turn that into coffee ice cream. And that's the way I I think that's the way all coffee ice cream should be made. <laughs> Kat, before I let you go, you know, this is the new season of tastemakers, but if I know you, you're thinking about the future, um, season four is, is this something that you're uh, considering right now? And if so, where are you planning on going? What are you thinking about? Absolutely. Um, I am already working on season four. I have shot one episode at the oldest continuously family farmed winery in the United States. I've already mentioned Herman, Missouri. It is in Herman, Missouri. It's called Adam Pukta Winery. And the seventh generation, if you can believe that, is at the helm right now. His wow. name is Parker Pukta. Yeah. You know, in the United States, especially, you don't have seven generations of farm families, let alone winemaking families. So it's really fascinating. But I'm also doing um, a story of a woman who is from Mexico and she has come to the States and she's making Sonoran style tortillas. And she just won a James Beard award this past year. So I'm telling her story. And then I'm also telling the story of a regenerative farm that is growing rice. Rice is um, one of the world's largest crops and it is it can be environmentally devastating and it can use a tremendous amount of water, which is a scarce, it's becoming scarcer and scarcer as we know. And so I'm going to be featuring a rice farm um, that is that is not using the flooding method. Um, and they also are a regenerative soil-based farm. So telling that story as well. Oh, great. Well, um, folks should, should look up... Uh where tastemakers when and where tastemakers is airing season three on their pbs station is probably airing right now um if folks want more information uh give them your website and uh, where they can find you cat yeah just go to watch tastemakers.com i have clips from all the episodes the recipes are there um and yeah if you have any ideas for makers who we should be covering shoot me an email um i i, I would i would love to get connected Kat Neville, great catching up with you. Been far too long. Let's not let it be another four years before we have you. Let's let's talk about season four when you get that done. And uh, congratulations on season three. It's great to talk to you again. And thanks for all you do to uh, promote this idea of local makers around the United States. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to chatting with you soon. Kat Neville, I'll tell you, she's always got something cool going on. Great to catch up with her. You can watch Tastemakers on PBS, check your local listing for airing time and date, or go to watchtastemakers.com. I've also got links to Kat and the places she talked about in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED258. Well, that'll put a fork in this episode. Next week, we are in Hakata, Japan for pickled ginger in your ramen and taking a bath in curry. 
You don't want to miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about a drink called the Broken Negroni, invented in Milan 50 years ago. That's a fun story. Read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also just posted a video about what it's like as an American living as a migrant in Portugal. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or go to my YouTube channel at DestinationEatDrink946. And while you're at DestinationEatDrink.com, sign up for the monthly newsletter to stay up to date on the foodie travel happenings. You can also drop us a couple of bucks to keep the operation going. Just click on the Contribute button at DestinationEatDrink.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla, a guy who's perfecting a scotch and mint ice cream. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>